I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 10 as we resume our summer study, or at least our intermittent summer study of the I am statements of Jesus as we consider this morning Jesus declaring I am the good shepherd, John chapter 10 verse 11. And as we're going through the word, let's go to our God and ask that his spirit would be present with us as we study his word this morning. But Father, we do come to you as we commit this time to your word, to hearing your voice uh, through the word and even through the words that I share. Lord, for it is your voice that is of utmost importance, for it is your voice that carries power and authority. It's your voice that leads us in all ways that are right and good and true, that brings transformation. And so I pray that you would open our minds as well as our hearts, that the words that we read, that we consider and study this morning, uh, would plant a seed within us and bring transformation, even in accordance with your promise that says your word never comes back empty, but is at work growing us in the righteousness of Christ, even as you are enabling us by your spirit to die to sin. Lord, shape us, we do pray, turning our hearts and attention to you and then responding to the love that is so evident particularly in the person of Christ whom we consider this morning. It's through him that we pray. To him we give all praise and glory. Amen. Earlier this year, in the springtime, Williamsburg was buzzing. Apparently it was Sheep Week, an annual celebration that the sheep in Colonial Williamsburg give birth This year, reportedly, there was a record 24 lambs that were born. But this was the first year that I recognized or or heard anything about it. And while people were flocking, pardon the pun, to, um, that was, uh, come on, give me a break. It's not even in my notes. Um, So, while people made their way, to the colonial area, taking pictures, putting them on social media, and people talking about all of this. You know, I I appreciated the pictures, but part of me was kind of wondering, what is the big deal? Don't sheep have, give birth like regularly? And it's not even like we live in an urban area. So people would talk about their journeys, and I just thought, it just doesn't seem to be a big deal. We never did make it down for Sheep Week. We went my day off the next Monday. And that came to mind this week as I was preparing for this message. I was remembering Sheep Week because I was reminded that all through the scriptures, God refers to people and even his own people as being like sheep. And even in this particular verse, it's an expression of the love that Jesus Christ has for his sheep. And thinking back to the Sheep Week and our our visit to uh, the colonial area and watching uh, I, I had this thought briefly is, you know, is it any wonder that God loves his sheep? I mean, I was thinking of those cuddly, fuzzy little furballs that were frolicking around their pen, bringing amusement and cute, cuddly. I mean, what's not to love? And yet as Jesus uses the phrase sheep, while there is a sense in which that may be part of it, we, he does love us. We are all created after his image. We do have value because of that, and no doubt that that's part of the love of God uh, that he has for us. Jesus had far more in mind. 
And while that's an appropriate picture of sheep to have in our mind, Wyoming rancher Philip Keller paints quite another picture that we also need to consider. In his contemporary classic book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, Keller writes this about sheep. Only those intimately acquainted with sheep and their habits understand the significance of a cast sheep or a cast down sheep. This is an old English shepherd's term for, uh, for a sheep that has turned over on its back and cannot get up again by itself. A cast sheep is a very pathetic sight. Lying on its back, its feet in the air, it flays away frantically, struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it will blat a little for help, but generally it lies there lashing about in fright and frustration. And if the owner does not arrive on the scene in a reasonably short time, the, the sheep will die. Even the largest, fattest, strongest, and sometimes healthiest sheep can become cast and be a casualty. The way it happens is this. A heavy, fat, or long fleece sheep will lie down comfortably in some little hollow or depression in the ground. It may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or relax. Suddenly, the center of gravity in the body shifts so that it turns on its back far enough that the feet no longer touch the ground. It may feel a sense of panic and start to paw frantically. Frequently, this only makes things worse. It rolls over even further. Now it is quite impossible for it to regain its feet. And as it lies there struggling, gases begin to build up within it. And as these expand, they tend to retard or cut off the blood circulation to the extremities of the body, especially to the legs. And if the weather is very hot and sunny, the cast sheep can die in a matter of hours. If it's cool and cloudy or rainy, it may survive in this position for several days. And the rest of the chapter and really the bulk of the book, what Keller does is he goes on and he describes his observations as a shepherd of, of sheep, reminding us that they are helpless and prone to wander and not particularly bright. And this is part of what we need to understand. This is the human condition that Jesus is describing when he says that we are sheep. And we need to be reminded that while we, of course, are cute and cuddly, in the scheme of the animal kingdom, sheep are not very high on the list. In fact, they're pretty low uh, on the list. And those who know sheep describe a number of characteristics. They claim that they're utterly defenseless because they have no ability to fight off any predators, nor do they have the ability to run away. We're told that when it comes to finding food, sheep are remarkably uncreative. They'll follow the same desolate paths to the same fields, even if they have been eaten dry. Even when there are lush fields only yards away from them, they just keep doing the same things over and over again. And yet, even though that they will follow the same patterns and do the same things over and over, even if it doesn't reward them for their efforts, sheep are also prone to wander at the same time. In fact, there's records of sheep that have wandered into open fires. They weren't put in the fire. Nobody was having lamb chops for dinner. The sheep were just wandering away, and there was a fire there. They wander right into the fire. Clearly, sheep are not very bright. One biologist that I read about I said, thought, wrote, wrote somewhat tongue-in-cheek, when he said that sheep seem to defy evolution. If you were to apply the laws or the principles of evolution to sheep, you would come to the conclusion sheep have absolutely no reason to have been able to survive as a species. And yet here they are. And they are how Jesus describes us 
and they are the objects of our Lord's affection. It's not because of the brilliance and the greatness of sheep, but it's because of the helplessness and the waywardness that we need to understand what Jesus is saying in this light. We need to hear the words that Jesus speaks about being our good shepherd because of the characteristics that we have that are similar to sheep. And so with that as a background, we now turn to God's word to hear what Jesus says. In, in John 10, verse 11, we'll read through verse 16. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid my life down for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The word of the Lord. As we look at this passage with the understanding of the characteristics that our human condition shares with sheep, despite the fact that in all of creation we are the only ones endowed to be like God, that are able to think, and clearly we are the highest of intelligence. It seems all the more curious then that we find ourselves acting like sheep, wandering through patterns of life that produce nothing good for us and keep doing the same things, finding something good and then wandering from it, particularly as we relate to our God, and finding circumstances in life that no matter how strong that we feel that we are, how capable we are, at one point or another, every one of us comes to the end of ourselves realizing we are helpless. The circumstances is greater than our resources and our abilities is able to overcome. Every one of us has experienced that. Some of you are experiencing that right now. And it's because of that that the words that Jesus speaks in saying, I am the good shepherd, are very important. Jesus is identifying himself. And so as we consider what Jesus says here, we look first at his identity. I am the good shepherd. Through the centuries, the idea of Jesus being a shepherd has been one of the most endearing and the most enduring um, images of him. It's been the inspiration for countless numbers of paintings. And because it's such a popular image, it sometimes escapes us, or we, we don't consider the fact that in, it's almost an oxymoron that Jesus would say this, at least in the context of the day that he was speaking. Jesus declaring himself the good shepherd. Good and shepherd were two words that usually were not associated with one another at that time. The shepherds of the day, while they were necessary to the economy and necessary for the feeding of people and for the clothing of people, they were considered to be the lowest of life. It was the lowest, one of the lowest jobs on the totem pole. The least appealing kinds of people were in that job. Many of them were thieves and crooks that could get employment nowhere else. And so they would take on this low job just simply that they could provide for themselves. And so when Jesus describes himself as a shepherd, it probably struck the people in the first day because this is not the image that you would expect of the promised Messiah 
or the one who would come to restore the fortunes of God's people. But even in this image, we see a picture of Jesus' humility. Not only that he would work in a job that was considered so lowly, but that he would identify himself so proudly as being a shepherd. We see the evidence of the humility of Christ in this. And then Jesus compares himself to those who were more commonly the shepherd. They were the ones who were the hired hands. The flocks were out in the fields. The people who were wealthy who owned the flocks needed people to look over them to, to, uh, to do the, the tedious details of the job, to endure some of the difficulties of the day because a shepherd is out in the fields in all sorts of weather, whether it's the heat or whether it's the cold. They are out in all of the elements and keeping watch over the flock, guiding them to the pastures so that they can be fed and fattened up, protecting them from whatever predators may come. And not only the wolves that are, are, are noted here in, in this particular passage, but those of you who are, are Bible students may remember that David, who was a shepherd before becoming king, talked about times that he had to fight off both lions and bears uh, that would come to devour the flock. And so the shepherd had a, a very, not only a tedious job, but it was a treacherous job. And in a sense, if we give them a break, we also can understand why some of these hired hands might go about their duties and put up a good fight, but there was a limit to how far they would be willing to go. Jesus says, so when the wolf comes, and so we assume the wolf comes and catches the shepherd unaware, the wolf has the advantage, the shepherd would flee. Jesus says because he doesn't really care much about the sheep. While I think that that's true, I would also try to put myself in that position because my attitude would be, and they're just sheep. <laughs> and while that may be an understandable attitude, Jesus in contrasting himself to this say, whether that's normal or whether you consider that to be irresponsible. When I say that I'm a shepherd, that's not what I'm like. I'm the good shepherd. I'm different than that. I lay my life down for the sheep. I will protect my sheep with my very life. There is no extent to which I will not go to protect my flock. And in that statement, we recognize not only the humility of Jesus Christ as part of his identity embodied in the statement that I am the good shepherd, but we recognize the care that he has for his people. Both are tremendously important for us to understand in the nature of Jesus Christ as he reveals himself and calls the people to himself and as we invite people to come and to worship this good shepherd. And yet, if we were to leave it at just those two characteristics of one who is humble and one who is caring, we would do a significant injustice both to this passage and to the person of Jesus Christ and really to those who are hearing. If those are the only characteristics, important, as wonderful as they are, we need to recognize that Jesus is saying something far more important, that he is humble enough and cares enough for his sheep that he protects them. But in this statement, not only is there protection, but we see a picture of redemption, something that nobody else, no shepherd other than the good shepherd, is able to accomplish. We're so used to the statement of Jesus being this shepherd who cares and who's willing to give down his life. We may not be impacted by just how startling this is. 
New Testament scholar Leon Morris is for a shepherd to actually die for a sheep must have been considered highly unusual and tragic. Again, the people hearing this would have been thinking about what does a shepherd normally do, and they would have all had the attitude, as important as sheep are, they are only sheep. But Jesus says, I care for them. They belong to me. They are mine, which is also an expression of the sovereignty that Jesus has because through the means of laying down his life, he has now purchased those sheep that belong to him. But Jesus is saying that I lay my life down. Something far more important than simply that he cares and that he's responsible. He's making a prophecy. He's declaring not that he would lay his life down, but that he is going to lay his life down. And this is the central theme of not only this verse, but this entire passage. In fact, if you were to skim through verse 11 and continue through verse 18, you're going to see that he repeats this phrase five times in eight verses, in the span of eight verses. Now, eight verses may seem a lot. That's basically a two-sentence conversation. And if somebody talks with you after church and they tell you something five times in the span of one minute, listen, it's probably something that's important. It's at least heavy on their mind. And Jesus wants us to hear, not just that he's the good shepherd, we need to have that identity and all that it impacts, but he's saying the reason he's the good shepherd is that he lays his life down for the sheep. He's promising that he is going to lay his life down. And it is a picture in advance of the fact that he would die to redeem a people for himself. But because this is shocking, we should be asking our question, well, why? Why does the good shepherd die? The Bible tells us that there are two reasons that are wrapped together in the good shepherd giving his life. One is the love of God and the other is the justice of God. Isaiah 53 does a wonderful job of mingling these two together. It may be what Jesus had in mind when he was speaking about being the good shepherd. But listen to these words again that remind us of why he died. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, Jesus is coming to a people and he's saying, look, you all are, are like sheep and you all go your own way. And even though God has blessed you, you, you turn your own way and you turn from me. It's a condition that's true for all of humanity. And God, because he's holy, and because he's just, he's not able to allow sin and our waywardness and our walking away from him to go unaddressed. God, because he is loving, also expresses mercy. And so he sent his only begotten son because he so loved the world. And he laid on his son all of the guilt of our wandering and sinning against God. And as the punishment was upon him, it was paid. The justice of God was satisfied. The holiness of God was not belittled. And yet, because he put it on him, and that by grace through faith, we are able to receive the benefit of that simply by believing and trusting what Christ has done for us, we are reminded that there is the love of God as well. 
something significant and easy to overlook in this passage is when Jesus says, I lay my life down for the sheep. The word for is significant for us here. In one sense, he's saying, I lay my life down on behalf of the sheep. There's a protection and there's a benefit that comes from that. But there is also a substitute here. The word for. I will give this for this. And that's what Jesus has in mind here. That word for is significant. And theologically, we say the picture that that word for gives to us as we understand the context is known as the substitutionary atonement. The fact that he died in our place that met the needs of justice for God. There's the atonement. But Jesus, laying his life for all who are his, he put himself in our place. And yet, we see love and justice in that, but his love goes even further than that. Because if you look in verses 17 and 18, and we're not going to look at them in detail this morning, but they're important to understanding this. Jesus also reminds us that substitutionary atonement is also voluntary. This was a love that was not just God saying, okay, you're drafted, you go in. Jesus says, I lay my life down. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I pick it up again. And through these words, Jesus reminds us of something that is essential for us. And it's important that we understand the full identity of the good shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who was humble when it came like us. He is the one who cares, and he is the one who protects us. But more than that, he is the one who is the redeemer. We can take the first characteristics and say there is a model for us, a demonstration of love. And it's there, but it's incomplete. We are in need, and the central message that Jesus is trying to drive home for us in this explanation is that he, and the I am, again, is significant because the I am is a declaration that Jesus is, is deity, that Jesus is himself God. In every one of these I am statements, he's saying, I'm God, and it was recognized, and it was scandalous. Jesus is saying, I, who am God, am laying down my life for, in place of those who have wandered from me in order to demonstrate love, secure them, redeem them, and to set them free. This is the essential message of Christianity. This is the essential message of Christ. And while seeing him as a teacher and as an example are wonderful if we lose sight of the fact that he is also our redeemer that was occurred through his death and resurrection, we miss the entire point. Consequently, New Testament commentator Frederick Dale Bruner says this, and I'm going to bear with this statement. I find it beautiful, Camper will, Ben will, but we're weird. <laughs> By the time I'm done, I hope you'll see it as beautiful as well. But he says this, a Christocentricity that is not somehow at the same time a crucio-Christocentricity, a cross of Christ-centeredness, is still off-center. In other words, he's calling us to be Christ-centered, and that is great. And a lot of people declare themselves to be Christ-centered, and that is wonderful. But you can be Christ-centered in seeing Jesus as our teacher and our model and our example. And you're still off the center of the message of the gospel, of Jesus' identity. Jesus says that the thing that is of most importance that we need to understand is all that comes through Christ giving himself on the cross, raising from the dead. That is the center of our focus and of our faith and of our hope and of the identity that Jesus is giving himself in this particular passage. 
And it's not just something that we profess, as important as that is, but it has practical applications for our lives that Jesus enlightens us to as we go further in this particular text. Now we need to understand Jesus as the good shepherd, the essential nature of that is the one who lays down his life for the very ones that he loves. And through laying his life down, he purchases them through his blood, those who are his. It's been said that at the cross, justice and mercy meet and kiss. It's important that we understand that as the foundation, not only that we stand on, but that we work on and live from. But Jesus does go on in verse 14, and again he repeats himself and says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus here is speaking of the intimacy that he has with his sheep. And so first we see Jesus' identity, and now we see the intimacy that he has with the ones he knows. Most of us understand that it's nice to be known. To go someplace where people know our names. Maybe your favorite restaurant. It may be church. It may just be out in the community. But when you're out and you run into people who know you and greet you by name, it makes you feel good. Thursday night as I got home and kind of kicked back and flipped the TV on for a moment and for some reason it came on to ESPN2. I don't know how that could possibly happen. Um, <laughs> I, I was a, a little surprised, um, but I noticed that ESPN2 was carrying a live memorial service for Pat Summit. Now, some of you, many of you may not know who Pat Summit is. Pat Summit is the winningest basketball coach in all of history of any level and um, and, um, and she had passed away a couple of weeks ago. And her significance is not really just about basketball, but the program that she built at the University of Tennessee uh, really changed the face of women's athletics, college and then ultimately uh, in, in professionally as well, because that program became the first program that became financially viable. In other words, that was the only women's program in the country that was actually making money. For a period of the University of Tennessee, the women would gather, get more people coming to games than the men did. It was just an absolute anomaly on the sports scene in America. And because of their success, they began getting on television. The ratings began to go up. ESPN, NCAA, everybody began making money. And so the Title IX that had been put into effect in the 70s for the quality of men and women's sports finally also was impacted by America's God, money, and women began getting much more exposure, people participated, and she is widely credited not only for building the program at the University of Tennessee, but indirectly being the one who has uh, uh, created a foundation that even the WNBA might be established. Now, that stuff may not be important to you in terms of the sporting event, but it is significant. Her, her significance is the impact that she's had in equality of women in the United States without going out and protesting, it's just going about doing her job and doing an excellent job. The reason that struck me is because when I was a student in college, I had the privilege of, of knowing Pat Summit. And not only did I have the opportunity of knowing Pat, who then was Pat Head, she wasn't yet married, but 
Pat and I were in some Bible studies together, and uh, so Pat also knew me. So when we crossed paths on campus, I wasn't anybody of any significance at that university, but Pat would greet me by name. And so as I was watching the memorial service, and through the years, her legend has continued to grow, and I don't have any doubt that soon after I was, had left campus, her memories of me had long faded, and I'm just one of many faces. But in a very real sense, at the time, I, I knew her. I knew her, she knew me, and she was able to greet me by name. And I just, those feelings came back of saying, it is nice to be known. It's nice to be known, it's nice to be known by somebody who's significant or somebody who's important. And no doubt, as we hear these words from Jesus, it's nice to, that I know mine and mine know me. We have this sense of, that's nice, that's comforting, that is reassuring. But we also need to know that Jesus is going far deeper than that statement of, I know you. And it's nice to be where somebody knows your name. I mean, consider what Jesus says here. And it is stunning. Jesus says, in verse 15, after he says, I know mine and they know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I think about that for a second. I mean, that is an absolutely stunning statement. The knowledge that Jesus has of his own, of you and of me, is the same knowledge that he has of God the Father and God the Father has of him. And the knowledge that you and I are called to have of him is the same as Jesus has for the Father and the Father has for Jesus. And the reason that is stunning is because from before the foundations of the earth, God the Father and Jesus Christ were one. One mind. One purpose. They were inseparable, though they were distinct. This is the most awesome intimacy that is possible because there is nothing that is not known between one and the other. And Jesus is saying, and that's how I know you. And that's how you can know me. And we need to stop at times and think about what an absolutely amazing statement that Jesus says about the relationship that we are able to have with him. And so it goes more than just a possible superficial and nice knowing, but an intimacy that goes beyond our comprehension. And yet the reality is for many of us, and certainly me included, being known in that way, while in one sense if I think about it superficially, it's nice, if I really think about it, it's quite unnerving. You see, many of us have the same struggle, and it's this. It's the same fear. If you really knew me, I'm not sure you would like me. And consequently, we build our lives upon a presentation that we think is most likely to get like and reciprocated. We present what we believe will get us most accepted by other people. And whether intentionally or not, we tend to do the same thing even in our relationship with God. We think only about those attributes of ourselves that we consider to be good. We try to minimize or promise and resolve to change those attributes which we consider to not be so good. And we live our lives in hopes that we never really get found out. And here Jesus says, I know you in the same way I know my Father and the Father knows me. 
And while that is beautiful, it is very uncomfortable. And yet, we need to grasp the reality that in this intimacy, uncomfortable as it may be, if we are willing to embrace it, we will find a freedom that enables us to be transformed in a way that nothing else will. Many of you have probably seen the movie Goodwill Hunting. I won't go through the entire movie, but knowing that there are some, it's old enough that some of you have not seen it. But toward the end of that movie, there is a particular scene that illustrates the freedom and the power of being known. Will Hunting is a troubled genius. He's a 20-something kid who's grew up in foster home after foster home, seriously abused in most of those, and therefore has come to a conclusion he can trust nobody. But he has a mind, particularly for mathematics, but other things as well, that just grasps photo, uh, photographic memory, uh, ability to do mathematics with the elite of the world, and he's found by an MIT professor who wants to take him under his wing, but realizing that the guy's been in and out of jail, the only way to keep him out of jail is to promise that he'll go through psychological counseling. The MIT professor finds an old friend, Robin Williams, who will counsel him and try to draw him out and keep him from, become, from being a hoodlum and turn him into a respectable math professor or something else. And time after time, Will Hunting, who's played by Matt Damon, is able to turn off all of the other counselors. He just is able to get at the heart and just yank them and just make everybody unnerved. But Robin Williams is as tough as he is. And there's a give and take relationship that is not necessarily one that you would consider healthy. But towards the end of the movie, there is a scene where Matt Damon is finishing up the required counseling. He's in the office with Robin Williams. And on Robin Williams' desk is a thick, folder. It's Will Hunting's file of all the things that he's experienced, his criminal record, anything that they have is on that file. And Matt Damon looks, or Will Hunting looks, and says, have you had any experience with anything like this? Robin Williams says, I've been counseling for a number of years. I've seen a lot. And he said, I didn't ask you that. I've asked, did you have any experience with this? And Robin Williams acknowledged he did. He, he grew up in an abusive household as well. And they just have this understanding at the time. Shared experience. Matt Damon knowing that somebody has the record and knows everything about him. Still is, likes him. And Robin Williams looks at him and says, you know this stuff? And he picks up the file. It's not your fault. And Will Hunting just kind of dismissively smiles. And Robin Williams repeats, it's not your fault. And then thinking it's a little weird, Will Hunting is kind of pushing back. The, the wall is still up, even though this is the person he's as close to as anybody else. And Robin Williams keeps repeating, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And you see the face of Will Hunting go through a transformation of in control and cool, dismissive of this kindness statement that is trying to get at the heart of somebody, to discomfort that somebody is trying to get inside of him, to agitation, to anger, trying to push the person away until eventually he breaks and weeps and grasps the hold of Robin Williams, broken by the intimacy of the knowledge and yet acceptance that he has. And yet he's set free. And for those of us who struggle with the idea of being known, we need to hear that the good shepherd, this can't be divorced from what Jesus has said about his identity. 
I am the good shepherd. I love you. I lay my life down for you, not only because I care, but because I'm redeeming you. I'm making you mine, and I know you. I knew this about you before I did this. There's everything. I love you, and my intimacy is not so that I get to know you better. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's so that you can be set free and know that you are loved. Now, Jesus is not saying to us, it's not your fault, because, frankly, it is your fault, and it's my fault. Our sin is our fault. We're born in this condition, but we prove it by our own actions. But Jesus is saying over and over to you who want to relate to a God who is holy and who is awesome and saying, you are forgiven. You are loved. I know you and I love you. And it's time for every one of us to embrace that same posture that Matthew Damon has said and not just dismiss it and sing some nice songs as a means of thanksgiving, but to go through the progress of the discomfort of knowing that we are known, maybe even the agitation of knowing that we are exposed until we come to the brokenness before God that sets us free. For those of you who wonder about the weirdness of our service, it's the reason we have a confession in our service every single week. It's not because this is the only place we can confess, but we want to make sure that in the lives of God's people, we are coming face to face with God and laid open only to be reminded we are loved by the grace of God in the Good Shepherd. And then finally, and I'm only going to touch on this very quickly because I'm out of time. We see Jesus speaking about his intent. In verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is giving us the vision. It's an incredibly beautiful vision. There will be one flock and one shepherd. There's other sheep. In other words, from all the nations. And we need to remember that when we hear this, Jesus was sent first to the, as the shepherd to the lost sheep of Israel. But he's also saying, I have other sheep, and he's talking about Gentiles, which therefore includes the entirety of the world. Jesus is tearing down the wall of division in religion at this point in time and saying, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, every race, every religion, every political affiliation, they are all part of my body, and there is nothing that can separate them from me, me from them, or them from one another. There's one flock. We have multiple expressions in the various church, but wherever Jesus Christ is proclaimed and honored as God who has died and rose again, it is the one church of Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' vision. And he says, I must bring them in also. And as we read through this very quickly, we see there's a missional implication because there are other sheep that are out there. And Jesus is saying they're going to be coming in as well. And we're told Apostle Paul reminds us that how are they going to come in unless somebody goes and tells them about Jesus? And how will somebody tell them unless somebody is sent and somebody goes? And so we recognize that there is a responsibility that we have to participate in this, but we can't miss this. Jesus says not, I have other sheep, go get them. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in. And while we are invited to participate in the mission of God, the responsibility of that mission rests on Jesus Christ and in him alone. We don't go people and invite them into the church. We go and hope that people will meet Jesus and hear his voice. He will gather them together. It is a very freeing thing. And there's two applications, just touching on that very quickly, is this. For some of us, it needs to be heard that Jesus has a call, that there are other sheep, and we need to go get them, and they're not like us. We are invited, called to participate to proclaim Christ to people who have never heard his name. It is a command that we participate. It is a privilege that we participate. 
Many of you are engaged, some of you are not. And for those who are not, hear what Jesus is saying. And think of who he is and how much he loves you and an opportunity to invite others to experience that love. For those of us who are involved, I also want, to hear, want you to hear this. So many of us are committed, have committed our lives to live for God and for his mission. There's a writer named Sky Juthani who has written a book just simply called With, and he points out really throughout the entirety of the book that while it is noble and commendable that we live our lives for God, many of us who live our lives for God have lost sight of the fact that we are invited and are required and are able to live our lives with God. We're so busy going out and doing things for him, we actually miss the intimacy of the relationship that Jesus is calling us to as the good shepherd. And Jesus is saying, hear my voice. Experience the intimacy with me. Live your life with me and watch the power that I will be demonstrating through you. So as we have this passage before us, very succinctly, we see the full orb of the Christian life here. We see the gospel and the identity of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We see the community of the one flock, one shepherd, of those whom Jesus has purchased that live together as the body of Christ, those who are known and who know. And we see mission. Because there are sheep that are not yet of the fold. More importantly, we need to embrace this reality. And I'm going to do something different this morning as I close, as I'm not going to close, which I know is your greatest fear for some of you. But we're going to close together. If you'll take your bulletins, you're going to find some familiar words there. And I want us to declare them together, our declaration of faith. Because this is the application that I would want for all of us, and I can read it for you, but by us reading it together, it's an opportunity for us, at least for the moment, to own it. We're prone to wander, so we need to come back. But these are the words that we need to hear. I invite you to take your bulletin and please stand. And together, let's declare. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul and guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I will walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.